Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. of decision-making this week. Would we be surprised if the government, will they legislate these workers back to work? Will they sign this deal? Will they come up with a deal? Whatever they do, it matters. It really, really matters because it is a political decision and an economic decision. It's also, as we discussed yesterday, a most modern decision because this is a big test of the might of the worker. These are government workers. So they have a, you know, a little bit more play because the government, as we know, they don't have to fiddle with the budget to make it work as much as the private industry. Lots of fascinating stuff being written on this. And I know we, we were getting some of the information yesterday, but it really is when we get down to public and private sector. And we talk a lot about tribes and there is a tribe there, isn't there? And there, and it is now as we examine how our ec- economy and employment is changing, one that separates people. Do you have a pension? And many Canadians do not. That has gone the way of the dodo bird. People in the public sector do, and now they want more. Joining me is Tasha Kearden, principal at Navigator, political analyst, author of The Right Path, and Substacker Extraordinaire. Tasha, happy Sunday. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, Arlene. Thank you so much. All right. What kind of a week you know, in pressure do you think this strike is putting on a liberal government that has been on its back heel over and over looking at some polling? And it's not been a good time for the liberals. Every move they make matters in a really intensified way. What danger areas do you see here with this strike? Well, I see a danger here in the sense that the NDP is very, very clearly supportive of um, the uh, of the strikers and saying that we, you know, if we get a situation of back-to-work legislation, they will not support the government. Now, the conservatives would support them probably in such a situation unless they think it's advantageous for the liberals to fall. So it would, you know, it, it sets them up for a situation where they might not have the confidence of the House. Um, that said, I don't think either the NDP or the liberals won election right now. So this could be posturing. <laughs> this could be a lot of things, but it's certainly makes things complicated for the Liberals because they have to maintain that supply and confidence agreement with the NDP. They do. And it's a test of that as well. I mean, it's a very, very tense time. But as you say, do they really want to go to the polls? You know, whatever happens here, it's big. It's going to go in the resume of the liberals and Canadians are watching and they're also watching in a new way. Everybody, we keep hearing about them, you know, the new power of the worker. Look at the healthcare workers and how they feel. So whatever is decided here is also going to send a message about 
what frame of mind liberals are in. And there's been criticism that Justin Trudeau, Christian Freeland, and their their economic policies right now are not feeling the pain of Canadians. Yeah, there's definitely that sense too. Um, I think that uh, you know the the, the liberals are, are being accused of ignoring what the average Canadian is going through. Now, their budget definitely tried to address that. That was their sort of top of mind. Um, but you've got, you know, you've got some of the strikers who are asking for cost of, or rather cost of living or wage increases that are far beyond what the average Canadian would get. Uh, CRA employees are asking basically for uh, a third more over, I think it is three years. So that's something that, you know, if the government were to grant them that in, in negotiations, I think Canadians would really cry foul. Do you think they're asking, when you look at those numbers, what do you think Canadians are thinking about that figure? Well, and how are they going to compare it? There's a lot less sympathy, right, than there would be um, for people, especially it's also CRA employees. People are, I get the intense that, you know, their jobs may be busy at certain times of year, but they're certainly not put in danger. They're not onerous. They're not what a lot of people on frontline jobs mm-hmm. face every day. So in terms of, you know, public sector already doesn't have a ton of sympathy, I would say, for many Canadians because people have pensions and their benefits to working for the government many people don't have. But, um, you know, just the number alone, I think, makes a lot of people take a pause and go, what? <laughs> I know. I, I, wanna, I was looking forward to talking to you as well. Is hung over from last week and is still there this week, and there's more. Is uh, the CBC conversation? I called the show mm-hmm. a rational conversation. I would like one. I've always wanted one to talk about the future of the CBC. It got kind of, in my opinion, kind of childish in the political venue in the last little while. But do you sense that's where we're heading, Tasha? Well, I think that the CBC has to be you know, the subject of a major rethink. And it's become this sort of toxic football in the last week. Um, Toxic because it was all over Twitter and Elon Musk was the, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the, (laughs) how should I say, he was very sarcastic in labeling it, you know, 69% government funding. There was a lot, I mean, there was a lot of, I would say, posturing around the issue to get clicks and tweets and likes and interest and that sort of thing. And I think that politicians jumped right into it and fed into that because it was in their interest. I mean, Pierre Polyev has been really hot on the issue of getting rid of the CBC um, since the leadership and probably before that, whereas Justin Trudeau is using this as an occasion to say, well, the conservatives want to just tear down institutions, and they are, you know, that's, that's their fault, and, and it's something that we shouldn't stand for, whether it's the CBC or other institutions in Canadian society. So they're both posturing, they're both using it, and most Canadians, I think, are just saying, well, you know what, let's just, why can't we just have a rational conversation about the future of the CBC in a multi-channel universe where it doesn't arguably have the same relevance that it did even five years ago. I, I know there's a, a new poll out that tells us how, how the demographics are thinking about it. It's really surprising, isn't it? It is to me. 55% of Canadians under 30 would shut down the CBC. They want to save the cash. They yep. think it's government propaganda. That wasn't always so. I can think of, and I know you can too, I'm sure, when you were an even younger conservative having this battle with a demographic that was just tied to the CBC. Right. And I think that is reflective of how people are watching and consuming television now and sort of the sense that people have a sense that, you know, you can't trust what you see on television or on media. And they're looking to channels and, and venues and forums where they think they have a higher trust level. Um, that could be, for some people, independent media. But it's also, I think, the sense that 
you've got, you know, um, the CDC, because it does receive most of this money from the government, the spillover effect of people not trusting government and then not trusting the CDC by ricochet. So it's a whole cascade of things that put the CDC on the real front lines of this debate. I mean, the anger at the media or not trusting the media itself has been an issue, but this is even more so. It is. I mean, you've had a lot of experience there. What's your sense? I mean, you've been an analyst there, and, and the conservatives kind of leaving Radio Canada out of this, too. I mean, it's pure bull politics here. Well, I think that, yeah, Radio Canada, that is interestingly not part of the conversation. And that's because Pierre Polyev knows, and Justin Trudeau as well, that it is a very different animal. Uh, Radio Canada serves the French public in Quebec, which has fewer channels, fewer options, and has a different type of history. And I think that, you know, that's why you haven't, you know, it's all been focused on English, English radio. Um, I mean, English Radio Canada, English, English CBC. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, yes, there's the other piece of the fact that government funding implies in many people's minds government control, which is inaccurate, to be honest. I have worked there. It's not government control day to day. It's the government has a mandate for the CBC different than for private broadcasters. Their mandate is to reflect Canada, its diversity, speak to, you know, so-called underserved communities, points of view you wouldn't hear about, things that aren't commercial. And as a result, those are the voices you hear on CBC. And some people say, well, mm-hmm. you know, I may, that's maybe not what I want to listen to, or maybe that's not reflective of my region, my area, why yeah. it's reflecting me. Is it at a crossroads, just cutting to the chase? I mean, CBC conversations have happened, but we had Elon Musk weighing in. You've got the, uh, Pierre Polyev pointing the finger and going for the jabs. We have this new poll that says the demographic that used to be hugging the CBC is now not, and they are mm-hmm. willing to shut it down to save money. Are we in a new place? How are you reading the situation? Well, I think we are. I mean, I think it's been building for years. And, the, you know, the, the CBC has always had the sense of we've got to revise our mandate. How many times have we heard that in our lifetime? Mm-hmm. Let's reexamine yeah. the mandate of the CBC. Yeah. Um, I Snore. think so it, it is, it's at a tipping point now because one party is specifically calling for it to be defunded. I think that's the political tipping point. You never really saw that before. People were disgruntled, but they didn't go that far. So that's what put it on the political radar. I think, though, that it does demand a rethink because, you know, the, the amount of money involved over a billion dollars a year is significant. Um, I think that we have reached a point which the polling shows that younger people in particular have little attachment. They don't see the value. They, they would move it into the private space or, or to stop funding it because their way of consuming television and, and broadcast has changed. And we just have more choice and more ways of representing those views. The mandate of the CBC is to represent unrepresented viewpoints in, in uncommercial pieces. But the long tail of television and of broadcast now shows you you can find those niche audiences with private broadcasts. There's lots of them. So the relevance of CBC, I think, as a big institution has to be questioned. Big week for media. Media still a hangover after the Dominion voting settlement. And you see in the Globe and Mail a big 
loud opinion piece from the CEO at Canadian of Dominion Voting. I also noticed a, um, an opinion piece also in the New York Times on the same day yesterday. Tasha, I mean, it's about the telling of lies, the truth. That was the headline yesterday mm-hmm. in the piece in The Globe. The truth still matters, considering we're changing our view of media. We're getting seeing a political pressure in Ottawa where this is being used as an issue. And then we have the streaming bill kicking in, kicks in yeah. this week, doesn't it, Tasha? So it's a it's a, a topic that is just electric right now. Are you feeling good about it? Or I mean, you were involved in the conservative leadership race and all those things came up. Um, what conservatives stand for? Are you feeling are you feeling fine about the media right now? And if not, why? Um, do I feel fine? It's it's you know, I haven't felt really that fine for a while, only because the media, I, I guess I grew up in that I knew and you as well, that landscape has changed a lot. And so you can see the good and the bad. I mean, the good is choice. The good is uh, an evolution to where you have more voices represented and more ways also of communicating online. People can access information. They can access media a lot faster and when it suits them as opposed to having to wait for your six o'clock news. The flip side, of course, is that atmosphere is hard to monetize. And the result is a dumbing down um, a lack of controls in the sense of, you know, copy editors for papers, um, mm-hmm. broadcasting, making sure that, you know, you have, you have videographers and you have people who are able to, to capture things as opposed to doing things like, you know, a multi, multi-use person trying to cheap out and getting one person doing everything, which means that when you're shooting a piece, you're doing something, you're, you're running your resources really thin and the chances of making a mistake are higher. And the, the demand for scoops and this kind of thing becomes that much more intensive because you've got to get eyeballs on screen. All these things, all these financial pressures mean that the quality goes down. And that's a problem when the mission really is to find the truth and hold people to account. What about bias, though? I mean, the Dominion mm. voting, of course, bias. You and I have been talking about the CBC, and that's part of the charge. If they're taking government money, is there bias? We have the streaming bill. People are wondering, is there going to be more government control? Control bias all coming out. And then we have people learning more, and then we have misinformation and disinformation. So changing minds. I mean, for me, it's an incredible time. And sometimes I'm thrilled. Sometimes I'm not, and I'm worried. Yeah, bias has been an issue as old as time. I mean, we, you know, you look at newspapers that were owned and still are owned by wealthy families. And so the argument is, oh, well, their point of view is put forward through the paper. Um, papers have always had, and news organizations as well, a particular slant. Um, it's nothing new. But I think the bias piece now is because it's more intensive because we've had such polarization happening in our politics. So really, the accusation of media becomes used by political parties. It's not just private interests and, you know, people who may own a paper. It's, it's, it's out and out parties, politicians using media or abusing media for their own purposes. So media has become politicized like never before. And that is a problem because those competing agendas have different visions of what the truth is. And if that trickles down to the press, then you can't trust the press. That's the problem. And if people lose trust in media, then where do they get their information and that's where you become open to propaganda, to manipulation. Social media is, you know, a rabbit warren. It takes you to all these places that algorithms where you just fed the same stuff over and over. You don't even know where it's coming from. That is the problem is that people end up in little silos of disinformation and they're really easy to manipulate. And that is very scary. 
Chinese spies interference. What about Russia? It was a week that kind of, for me, solidified the sense that maybe we've been asleep at the wheel. New information about an NGO that built ties here in Canada, but took all their direction from spies in Moscow. That was alleged this week by the FBI. And we're going to get some information on how this relates to investigations and knowledge here in Canada. Joining me is Marcus Kolga, Disinfo Watch and Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Marcus, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on, Arlene. All right. Many Russia stories today. Here we go. First of all, this connection to Canada, this alleged illegal agent, Natalia Berlinova, connected to Moscow and spying here. There was an interview with Natalia in the Globe and Mail, and you and I have talked so much about Russia and Ukraine But in the light of Chinese election interference, here we have this new cloud haunting us back for those of us who've been watching it, Russian interference. What does the breaking of the story mean to you? Well, look, I mean, this is nothing new. Um, This is this sort of interference, uh, what we're seeing here in this indictment, the U.S. indictment against this woman, Natalia Berlinova and her organization, Picriati. Um, this is the sort of activity that the Soviets were engaging in during the Cold War. Um, and what they would do is that they would um, have their embassies and their intelligence agents who work at those embassies um, monitor and keep an eye out for uh, academics, journalists, um, officials who might be uh, open to um, working with uh, the Soviet government, um, who might have a favorable view of of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, and they were doing this throughout the Cold War. And we know this because uh, even back in 1945, there was a royal commission. Um, they identified several dozen of these Canadians who had been uh, contacted and, be- and became assets of the of the uh, of the Soviet government back then, eleven of them were were charged and uh, and found guilty of actually uh, working with the Soviet Union. Now, in the 1990s, of course, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the the Russians sort of scaled back those operations. They were more concerned about you know sort of rebuilding the country. And uh, but that all changed in in 2000 when Vladimir Putin came to power, and uh, they sort of uh, started recycling some of those. Uh, old Soviet uh, tactics of trying to influence Western democracies. And, and here we have this organization, uh, Pikrati, and, and as you mentioned, this, this Natalia Berlinova, um, who was doing much of the same sort of activity, identifying, um, you know, Canadian, American, European academics, inviting them to Moscow, basically putting them through sort of propaganda sessions. Uh, and then sending them out with the hope that uh, back home, with the hope that they would relay those sorts of narratives back in their in their home countries. Um, and what's uh, what's really concerning about this specific organization and this person is that the the U.S. has now charged her um, with uh, with various offenses under the Foreign Registry uh, Act, and um, and apparently she was taking orders and and working very closely with the FSB, which is of course the um, the successor to the old K- Russian Soviet KGB, and so it's it seems like this uh, this organization was a 
uh, a Russian intel operation, uh, certainly funded by the Russian government. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are these Canadian connections, uh, Canadian academics, um, perhaps some journalists who uh, who participated in in those uh, sessions. So, um, yeah, it's it's deeply concerning and, and further proof that Russia is trying to interfere in 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 our democracy here. Now, you and I have had lots of conversations over the last couple of years about this very thing. And I have to be honest with you, without naming names, I'm an interviewer. And sometimes I get people to comment on influence or Ukraine war, and they seem to be reciting what my research shows, uh, Russian talking points, and they're bang on. And some of them have quite surprised me. And I'll push back a little bit on them. And I, I wonder where it comes from. Marcus, is this kind of opening a closet for Canadians, a wake-up call for Canadians on infiltration here, possibly? Well, definitely. Look, I, I, Canadians are obviously free and entitled to have their own opinions. Um, you know, the, the question is when those, or where are those those opinions coming from? What's influencing those opinions? If they're coming by them honestly, um, you know, there's clearly no problem with, with that. I mean, I, you and I may disagree with them, but they're 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 entitled to have those opinions. The problem uh, occurs when when you have. Um, foreign influence. You have RT. You have these, you know, uh, operations on social media that are being conducted out of um, St. Petersburg. We've all heard about the the Internet Research Agency. This uh, this basically a building that houses hundreds of of Russian um, operators who who uh, try to influence social media through this through this organization, which, by the way, is owned by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the same person who owns the Wagner Mercenary Group. Um, when, mm -hmm. when these actors influence our public debate and manipulate our broader understanding of geopolitics, that's where, where the, the, the problem, we run into these problems. And the, the other problem is that when you have you know, academics, journalists, who participate in these exchanges with foreign authoritarian governments, they then come back home and are probably oh, yeah. a bit more predisposed to legitimizing those Russian state narratives. And, and that's where we, you know, we see the proliferation of them, the amplification of them. And then you have people coming on to your shows, um, you know, parroting some of these talking points unfortunately. So that's, yeah, that's and then, where the problem is. Yeah. And then you see on social media, I learned something about Russia I didn't know before. The other side of the story, all of it. I mean, you get used to it after a while. Before yeah. we move on, because there's so much to talk about this week, but this this person is now using Russia phobia. Here we go. <laughs> I mean. That's a classic. Uh, it's a classic. <laughs> what were you thinking when you read that? In this I started. I honestly, I, I had the, uh, I had, I opened up my globe this morning. I saw the article, and I, I, I nearly had a spit take. I mean, these were mm -hmm. all the classic talking points. You know, Russophobia. That's a, it's as you know, uh, you know, we're we're chuckling about it, but this is a, a a term that's used often by the Russian government, Russian agents, to deflect attention away, um, and uh, and to uh, push back against any sort of critics of, of the Russian government. So, you know, I was, I was, I was surprised to actually see that in, in this interview. I thought, you know, uh, this woman may have been a bit more sophisticated, but to know she, you know, went to the old standard Russophobia. Uh, and then of course, when, uh, when the interviewer Colin Freeze, the, the journalist mm -hmm. who actually wrote the initial story about this, 
a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, he asked about those connections to the FSB, and she said that oh, she can't comment on that. She's instructed not to comment on it, but it's Russophobic. So, I mean, it was uh, it was a bit of a, a a train wreck of an interview I found, and I think I came out out of that read after reading that, thinking that um, I'm, you know, it's it's I'm I'm confident that uh, that the U.S. got it right that she is probably uh, very much working. Uh, with uh, or if not for the the uh, Russian government and Russian intelligence. All right. We have to stay tuned to that one. I also want to get your comment uh, tying into this. We had some comments from the prime minister that came out from the leaked document. That is the worry for the Pentagon in the United States from the 21-year-old National yeah. Guardsman making international headlines by a story that ties in with Ukraine and Russia because it is our prime minister saying we cannot meet those military commitments. Canada, our relationship with allies, our commitment and our reliability are on the line, according to a lot of analysis around the world. And Marcus, we've been getting a lot of negative press as a country, certainly the prime minister. Is it deserved? Is this a moment? Uh, yeah, well, look, I, I speak to a lot of these uh, foreign government representatives, our NATO allies and such. Um, and I've already been hearing for a number of years, uh, a lot of grumbling about our failure to meet our NATO commitments, uh, certainly with with regards to the 2% of, of, of funding. Um, there have been questions about whether we're a reliable partner. Uh, I think it's affecting our reputation uh, uh, amongst our allies. Um, and certainly, you know, in Latvia, where we, we have our troops, thankfully, and, and it's much appreciated by the Latvian government that we are there leading that enhanced forward presence mission uh, to deter a, a Russian attack against the Baltics. But, um, you know, last year in Madrid, we made a commitment to expanding that and we've done virtually nothing about it. Um, and it, and it seems like we cannot, we don't have the resources and we don't have the funding to actually carry through, uh, with that project. Um, you know, it's everyone noticed when it, you know, our turn came up to participate in the Baltic air policing. Uh, pro- NATO program. Uh, this is a, a you know uh, an air policing program that's based out of Lithuania, where NATO allies rotate in and out every few months um, with their jets and their their pilots to patrol the Baltics. Um, we weren't able to do it the last time. We had to uh, we had to ask NATO for for a pass on it, but just simply because uh, we didn't have the resources. Uh, our allies are noticing this, and um, you know I think that Canadians need to be a bit more aware of this. You know, I think we've got away with a, a free pass when it comes to our national defense because of our, our neighbor to the south and our, and our good relations with them. But they're also, as you know, that article in the Washington Post indicated, they're also not very happy. Mm-hmm. And there have been some pretty, uh, pretty sharp comments coming from uh, former, former U.S. diplomats um, who are saying that Canada really needs to uh, uh, step up and, uh, and and get with the program uh, within NATO and within our for our national our own national security. So it's it's a big concern. Vladimir Kara Mirza on a sentence mm. twenty five years. I know you just wrote a piece, uh, opinion piece in the Globe and Mail about again how Canada has to step up here. All the allies have to step up. Oh. Is it getting enough attention, Marcus? It never gets enough attention, Arlene. Uh, and again. Uh, I want to thank you because you've been covering this story regularly on all of your programs. And and it's really thanks to that that I think that there is attention 
uh, here in Canada. Um, but yeah, we need to pay more attention to this. Um, you know, we need to do a heck of a lot more to uh, support Russian civil society um, and and dissidents like Vladimir. Um, you know, uh, this means you know supporting their families, for example, um, through through with our allies, um, making sure that they have what they need. To get by when their family member is, is sitting in a in a Russian prison, and as you mentioned, Vladimir is in there for twenty five years. Um, you know, without you know, it's it's that sort of support. Uh, if we can demonstrate that sort sort of support and provide that sort of support, that um, then empowers and uh, enables uh, enables others to uh, take on that same sort of very very risky work of. Of standing up and advocating for for democracy, um, because look, if if ultimately if if we want a world that is without Vladimir Putin, um, it's going to uh, that so that world is going to come to be through people like Vladimir Karamurza who are fighting for democracy. Um, so if we want that sort of a world, we need to support that and invest in those people and those organizations who are fighting for, uh, on our behalf and for democracy in uh, in Russia and, and ultimately stability throughout the. Uh, throughout Europe and the rest of the world. All right, we got a bit of Russia mania here. I, I also, I also see that um, the McDonald Laurier Institute is the target of Russia. They are not in agreement with your website. No. Are you honored to be singled out, Marcus? <laughs> it's getting tiring uh, getting mm-hmm. singled out all the time by the mm-hmm. Russian government. Uh, no, look. Uh, I think that the Canadian government has to pay attention to this quite honestly. Um, what happened here is that the a Russian prosecutor general sent a, uh, a letter to the McDonald Laurie Institute's web hosting company demanding that the hosting company take down the MLI website uh, because of uh, some laws that uh, the website or content on the website had apparently violated. And what this represents is, is a, a case of transnational censorship, uh, transnational repression, intimidation, trying to uh, silence Canadians. Um, and it's an, inf- it's a, it's a direct uh, effort to violate our, uh, our, uh, our freedoms. Uh, and this is something that I should hope that it should come to the attention of the Canadian government. And the Canadian government should be asking the, uh, the, the Russian ambassador for an explanation as to how this is possible and why they think they have a right to do this. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's an honor, but it's also a really deep concern. If we, if we let this pass, if we don't stand up and say something, um, they may start doing this with other websites, diaspora groups, others. Uh, this is how they intimidate, uh, uh, Canadian critics and uh, critics in the Western world into silence. Look at all the oh, all the stories that are uh, circling here about Russia, uh, Vladimir Karamurza and his treatment to critics. Then we have uh, the infiltration and the attention given on those who may walk among us here in Canada, taking yeah. their orders from Moscow. We've, we're focusing so much on Chinese election interference. Let's put it yeah. all together here. Marcus, if I gave you a magic wand and you could affect what Canadian democracy and perhaps Canadian powers that be in our government, what would you do right now? I mean, is this an unveiling of something that maybe people have either been blind to or they didn't want to see? Well, look, I think you're absolutely right in in noting the fact that we've been focused almost uh, exclusively on on Chinese government interference, uh, whether it's you know primarily during our elections and, and otherwise, uh, and certainly yeah, and rightfully so with these police stations that are used to 
monitor or intimidate the Chinese diaspora here in in, in Canada. But um, the problem is much broader. You know, Russia is doing the same thing. They are also monitoring uh, their diaspora. Um, they are threatening critics. I've, you know, you and I have talked about this years ago. I've, I've faced death threats that have been uh, investigated by the police. Uh, others have, you know, this now there's this case against uh, the McDonnell Laurie Institute. Um, these are not threats that just, you know, they're, they don't just uh, emerge during election periods. It is our entire democracy. It is our, um, our, our freedom of expression, our understanding of the world that is being targeted by not just China, but the Russian government, the Iranian government, and other authoritarian regimes. And, you know, we need to start um, acting quickly if we want to defend ourselves because they're not, they don't sleep, they don't stop. They're, for them, this is a, a 24-7 operation to try and undermine our democracy and, and destabilize us and, and erode the cohesion within our society. So what if I had a magic wand, I would accelerate the creation of this uh, foreign influence registry scheme that would require uh, foreign agents like this one that is this person who's being indicted, for example, in the U.S., um, making sure that we have a registry so that our elected officials, our media, everyone knows who's uh, being uh, paid for by the by foreign regimes, uh, who they're acting on on behalf of. And um, and what their uh, objectives are doing that's that's important and and for the government to come up with a whole of society approach to mm -hmm. starting to talk about this uh, this problem throughout our democracy um, bringing media social media civil society academics and the government and all political parties around the table so that everyone gets on the same page and we can start talking about how we push back against this as a society uh, because that's the only way we're going to defend ourselves against it. Um, like I said, these uh, our, our adversaries don't sleep, and they're going to continue this sort of activity um, until we we stand up and, and put a stop to it. A final question, and it's putting it in context for our listeners here: Have we been asleep more than other countries? I mean, are we have we been ignoring this? Yeah, yeah. We've, I mean, it's just like our national defense. You know, the fact exactly. that you know we've been sleepwalking the past several decades, certainly since the end of the Cold War. There's been this belief that, you know, who's going to attack us? We're, we're just Canada. We're just a middle power. No one wants to mess around with us. Um, and so we've let our guard down with regards to national defense. Uh, we've uh, let our guard down with regards to defending and promoting democracy. This is something that we just stopped doing altogether and something that we, the, the uh, democratic community used to do quite a bit in the past. We've stopped doing that. And so, yeah, uh, you know, I think we believe that, um, you know, as uh, Fukuyama said, we, we arrived at the end of history in 1991, 1992, that liberal democracy had won, but it hasn't. Um, and we're, we're on our heels right now. Uh, and we need to recognize this. Uh, and I don't think that we've, we've, we've done that fully. Uh, and, and this is, you know, our, our adversaries know this and we're going to exploit that. Marcus Koga. Senior Fellow at the McDonnell Laurie Institute, leader of the Canadian Civil Society Campaign for Magnitsky Legislation. Thank you, Marcus. Wake up call. Thank you for dinging the bell. Appreciate it. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Armin. 
It is a cultural reckoning, the tearing down of history, the changing of names, the taking down of monuments. We've also seen it in the United States, and we've grappled with the importance, what's right, what's wrong, and how do we adapt? Well, as I said, as I began the show, I love uh, looking at things in a different way, in a third way, and a new group is trying to put the brakes on this cultural reckoning by explaining things historically in a different way. One of the members of this group is a former Ontario cabinet minister, Gordon Walker. Gordon, good afternoon. Thank you for being with us. Well, I'm very pleased. All right, Gordon, how did you get the idea for this? I mean, we've watched it and seen both sides. It's so difficult. Is our history important or do we owe a change? Why did you think that there may be another way to do this? I think that it's concerning for anybody to realize that there may be some things happening to our history, a rewriting, if that's the right word, and a change. These things are probably bothering a number of people, and I think we probably see it in a variety of areas. It's not just in the history of historical personages or or commemoratives like statues or or streets, roads, buildings and the like. It's not just in that. We seem to be seeing a rewriting of history. We're seeing it, of course, in many, many areas. We're seeing it, for instance, even in movies. We're seeing it in how things are 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 appearing on a screen, on movie screens, where history is quite a bit different than what is being portrayed on that. I'm thinking, for instance, of the series done on The Crown, uh, which was, Mm -hmm. in some respects, historically accurate, but in other respects, simply fiction. So we see it in many areas. But what's bothering a number of people, when they look and see that our history is being torn down, that's very disturbing. If our history is being rewritten, if it's being rewritten in a form that's quite inaccurate or false, totally wrong, then that's that's very, very disturbing. So we see this in monuments. We see this in statues. We see this in roads. For instance, uh, uh, we could be talking about John A. MacDonald, and in a variety of areas all across Canada. And they're not paying very much attention to uh, what might be his great contributions to creating this country. I mean, after all, without MacDonald, there would be no Canada. Maybe we would be the 51st state. But, you know, as you say that, because I I was thinking of um, John A. as you were speaking there, and in Prince Edward Island, there was a famous bench, and I often used to sit out there and sometimes, you know, pull up my microphone and and think about interviewing the sculpture there. It is gone, and it is one of many. And I just want to ask you as we move forward here, who's... Who's coming together with you? This new group, and I want to give our listeners the name, the Canadian Institute for Historical Education. Who's who's joining you there, Gordon? Are they average citizens who are concerned? Well, let me back up and say that there was cause for concern, which brought it about. Then who are the people? Well, uh, frankly, 
a, a number of us were former politicians, and uh, you introduced me as such, and I have a number of colleagues that I've spoken to in the past from all parties, and uh, we were expressed some alarm. And so the group that kind of came together towards the end of last year would be some number of historians, uh, professional <laughs> historians, even amateur historians, but also uh, the formal, former political people. For instance, uh, there are a couple of people who were, uh, in my case, I was involved with the Conservative Party. I was uh, a member of the legislature for 12 years from London, Ontario. I was in the cabinet for seven years. So I, I'm quite identified as conservative, but we have two people, for instance, who have been uh, former deputy leaders of the Liberal Party of Ontario uh, in the form of Anna Maria Castrilli and, and uh, uh, Sean Conway. We have other people who have been involved with us, uh, uh, a former NDP member of, of Parliament from uh, Toronto Broadview and uh, Lynn McDonald. So we have some former. You got a diverse people. group there. People, people there, coming together. We're we're, we're going to take yes. a break, but before we go to break, because I, I want to learn more. As you know, is there another way here, Gordon? That's what we think. All right. So if uh, um, I can explain the way that we have here, and and frankly, what we're thinking of is okay. If people are saying that the history is different or if they're falsifying the history, then let us correct the history. Let us make sure we're saying the right things. And in that respect, our approach to it is to conduct a very thorough assessment, a review, assess whether or not the history, the accusations are being accurate or not. I'm thinking of Dundas Street. It runs uh, mm -hmm. all the way across uh, much of Ontario. Yeah. And, and yeah, and it has been part of the big controversy here. Uh, you were just getting into an example of what this would look like. You know, as you say, you want to leave the history, but really maybe change the facts of what we know. How would you do that? Well, we want to find the truth. If there is uh, accusation made about various historical personages, then I think our institute intends to get to the root of the matter and find out what's true and what's not, and then publish it in such a way that it becomes irrefutable. So we created our institute. It's for historical education. We incorporated it. But the purpose is to have real academic research and historical evidence-based analysis. So good or bad, we're going to go after it and find out. We hear the accusation. Well, if the accusations are that they're false, for instance, on Dundas, but they could be just on Egerton Ryerson, or it could be about John A. Mm -hmm. MacDonald, for that matter. It could be um, any host of them. Or the other day I heard it was uh, James McGill, the founder of McGill University. Well, they want to, some people want to get rid of that name on that university. Uh, so our purpose here is to get to the truth, and in that respect, we have actually engaged and, and paid for professional information, or let's call it this way, we've gone to the professional historians uh, mm -hmm. to produce evidence. And so the, the one that comes directly to mind is that involving Dundas, which is a street, of course, running right from Toronto right through to London, right through uh, your area, certainly. And, and Dundas 
Toronto wanted to change Dundas Street. Why did they want to change it? Well, they heard accusations that Dundas slowed down Dundas. Well, who is Dundas? First of all, no one ever heard mm-hmm. of Dundas until a couple of years ago. We all always thought that the road, that Dundas Street, was a road that led to Dundas, Ontario. Um, we had, mm-hmm. Whoever knew that it involved um, a man who was a... In the political world in England in the 1790s, who was involved in uh, attempting to get the abolition of slave trade, and uh, he was the colonial secretary of Great Britain, but therefore he was also heavily involved in Canada and indeed a lot of other places where the British Empire was because he was the colonial secretary. He was uh, He's accused of slowing down the... Uh, the issue of slavery abolition, when in effect, we've conducted enough analysis to say, this man speeded it up. He didn't slow it down. He should be, they should build a statue for him for speeding up the abolition. So we did some real research on this, paid for the research, a professor from Trent University by the name of, of Christopher Dummett actually did analyzed the situation, and for some serious period of time, researched the Dundas story to come up with the true story. We held a colloquium in Toronto on April the 15th. The purpose yeah. was to assess this. All right, let me ask you, is it changing minds? Because there's emotion connected to this. If you present this evidence, are you are those who want to tear it down, to change the name, to get rid of it. Are they appeased by this, Gordon, this new information? Well, well, who's to say um, when you're dealing with city councils, regardless of where the municipality is, uh, can go one way or the other. And, and sometimes it seems to go both ways. But maybe we can maybe we can persuade, for instance, Toronto City Council, who voted to abolish the name Dundas Street. At great cost, I mean, tens of millions of dollars, some people are estimating, to change mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Whereas a place like Mississauga and I, and I believe Hamilton and London, Ontario, have, have said, oh, heck with that, we're not doing that kind of thing. Um, but in any case, Toronto City Council, caught up in an issue, decided to vote the street out. They haven't replaced it with another name yet, but they intend to. But, you know, maybe we can change minds. There are a few people on that council who are saying, we've got to take another look at this. We may have got the history wrong. We in our institute say, you got the history wrong. Gordon, are are, you know, in your institute, are there there those who, I mean, would you say they understand why some people want to change things? Yes, Yes, we can understand. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, if if our research were to reveal that uh, the uh, uh, evidence was as they maintained, then I suppose we would want to rethink it ourselves. But if we've got a case to make that say that you've got that history wrong, then I think that's what our real purpose is. If we can produce the evidence to show that the thoughts that they had at that time, whenever they made their decision were wrongly held, well, uh, that's a good service to provide. Now, there may be other issues. There may be mm-hmm. issues, for instance, 
the mores of today may not be the same mores of 170 years ago or 150 years ago. You know, back but then, does that matter then, Gordon? I mean, because well, that, things history, do change, I mean, and sometimes it's it's darn good that we look at things differently. Well, there's nothing wrong with uh, uh, with people taking another look at things, and indeed, mm-hmm. there may even be occasions when, uh, let's say, a school was named for something or other in in uh, 1910, and they say, "Well, uh, you know, it's time to forget that. Let's name it after somebody else today, maybe a more modern mm-hmm. person." So there's nothing wrong with that kind of thing, but when someone comes along and falsifies the history, then that's wrong. How often do you think this is happening? I mean, you know, because this is just, this is happening across the country. It's happening across North America. But here in Canada, would you say that it is uh, an occurrence that's happening in other places too? Do you think, I mean, you're kind of like uh, the wrongfully accused for monuments and historical places? Well, I do know this, that across the world, um, there are incidences of this nature where people are applying their own thoughts or mores of today Mm -hmm. and applying them to what they were back then. And they're sort of saying that the person back then um, shouldn't have had those uh, thoughts. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. uh, we used to hang pickpockets back in the 1850s. Well, none of us today would think hanging a pickpocket is a a proper thing. But those people back then might well have done that. Well, whoever contributed to history back then, and it might have been George Brown, for instance, of the uh, uh, of the Globe and Mail, or it may have been other fathers of Confederation, should they have been should they be held accountable to the mores of today for what they believed in back then, which might have been perfectly acceptable by all people by society back then? Those are things that are worthy of considering in history as well. Uh, the best example of that is probably John A. MacDonald. Remember that mm-hmm. MacDonald uh, founded this country and did so much to create it, and without him there wouldn't be a country. Now, um, I don't know whether he, what he might have believed in, but there might have been some things that some people say today he should not have believed in. Should he be held accountable for that kind of thing by holding his views back then and being applied to what they are today. Yeah, right. and that and that's not evidence-based. That's uh, that's up for a discussion. You know, we I think it was just last week, wasn't it? We talked about the mortality gap. It was just so striking what was happening in the United States of America and how people were not living as long as they were before. Now there's something, and this this information really struck me. It is a men's health crisis. And there was a piece in the Washington Post, and it went through bit by bit by bit the kind of ways that men are not living as long. It is overwhelming. Derek Griffin is joining us live, a professor, health management and policy and Department of Oncology at Georgetown University, also chair of Global Action on Men's Health, which brings him to this topic. Derek Griffith, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. 
What a story here. Like, you know, we knew I was, we were reminded that uh, during the COVID outbreak that men were getting it. And I think they were a bit more likely to die. We always knew. I, I remember my mother teasing my father that men die before women. But this mm-hmm. new amalgamation of men's longevity is something that I wasn't prepared for. Derek, just how different is the modern man's lifetime compared to a woman right now? Well, let me start by saying this. This isn't really a new phenomenon. So it's interesting that it's, I'm actually sort of struck by this getting this much attention. Um, oh, really? We've known, this is this is actually been a 20th century phenomenon. This difference between men and women really didn't exist in 1900, and it actually grew over the last 120 years. So part of the question that we've had is why have all of the technological advances that we've seen not equally advantaged men and women in terms of their health and well-being because the the gaps have actually grown from about two years to now that you're seeing the number i think in the in the post piece was like 5.9 years in the united states and that's not a unique thing to the united states men have a higher rate of premature mortality or dying before the age of 60 or 70 in most countries in the world and have a shorter life expectancy than women in most countries of the world so it's not really a u.s phenomenon in that way, and it's not a new phenomenon, it's just that we're starting to now pay more attention to it. All right, let's go through it, and then we'll talk about how it happens and how we're reacting to it. I mean, I, whatever, I mean, I cover health, and there's always been kind of a, a feeling that women's health issues are not getting attention. But I was just really gobsmacked, if I'm being used that, on these kind of numbers. <laughs> so let's go through some of the ways that men are dying before women. And, and what areas here? We know heart disease. Do you want to give us a little bit of a rundown, paint a picture for us here? Well, the, the, the easiest way I can say it is if you look at the 15 leading causes of death in the United States, uh, men and women are roughly are essentially dying of the same things. It's just that di- men die at higher rates of 13 of the 15 of those. So the only things for which women die at higher rates when you age adjust or look at you consider age in this factor, uh, women die at higher rates of accidents and uh, chronic lower respiratory diseases like COPD, asthma, and so forth. But for everything else, heart disease, cancer, COVID, stroke, Alzheimer's, you name it, you know, um, men die at higher rates. Um, so, again, this, is, this has been a consistent pattern. It's just that it's something that has not really taken has not been a priority in public health because men aren't advantaged, aren't disadvantaged in our society. No, they are. But this is, I mean, even when it comes to pedestrian deaths, motor vehicle crashes, suicide, one thing after another. So, you know, it, it is, let me just ask you, why? Why is, why are the rates so much higher, Derek? Well, I don't know that we know. I think we've tried to look at this. One of the things that that we've tried to do that I think is part of the reason that the problem has persisted is we've tried to look at this more from a biological standpoint than from a a more holistic standpoint. So we've tried to look at uh, both men and women's health through much more of looking at what are biological factors associated with sex, um, hormones, and, and those kinds of factors that are really specific to 
the biology. What we're actually finding is that men and women, and actually those who don't fit the gender binary, all benefit from is looking at this through the lens of gender and other social factors that intersect with gender. And that's where we're actually missing, and that's what we're trying to do in this work now is bring attention to that. Because those factors, we know that as we look at a broad range of things, it's really the things that happen outside of the doctor's office that are really driving poor health and well-being. And so we really have to look at those kinds of factors. I'm sorry. I'm seeing here, too, I mean, hormonal biology. Is there a chance that nature just made made guys more susceptible to death here? Is Is this just built in? Nature, nurture, old question there. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think if the numbers hadn't changed so dramatically over the course of, that's why I sort of was highlighting the time part. If yeah. the numbers hadn't changed so dramatically over this 100 plus year time period, then then I would say yes. But the, if they were, if it was really about biology, then about men, you know, nobody's biology changes, you know, by a population doesn't change that fast. So it's got to be something else that's happening that leads that contributes to this. And the only things that are happening are things outside of it's more of the nurture than the nature to use your your point. It is. Well, I want to get into the nurture. I just want to stay with the nature, though. There's always been a difference, isn't there, between a testosterone, estrogen. We know women are protected from heart attacks. Then they reach menopause. Then they're not protected from heart attacks. How much, though, Mm -hmm. those hormones do dictate how the two genders react to stuff? So there definitely are are those kind of biological factors. I mean, we know one of the reasons that men did die of COVID, for example, at higher rates than women is because women's immune response tends to be uh, stronger generally than men's. And it is because of the biology, the, the immune response is really driven by the X hormone versus the Y and so forth. And women have XX, men have an XY. And so you have essentially double the immune response. So you have those kind of factors that definitely play a part for sure. All right. I just want to go through a little bit more on this list because mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't know men died of cancer at such a high rate over women. I mean, are these significant amounts in your opinion here? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's not to say this is not an effort to take attention and resources away from women's health. No. By no means do we want to do that. We want to make sure that women are still healthy. We need, we need to continue to invest in advanced work like the Office of Women's Health at the federal level. Like all of that work needs to continue. This is simply saying this is not a zero-sum game. We need to also look at men's health as well. So the main, the leading cause of death, for example, for men in terms of cancer is lung cancer, but we tend to actually focus much more on, there's more investment seemingly in um, breast cancer and even in men really in prostate cancer. And so we really haven't looked at lung cancer through a gendered lens. And why is it that, and what can we do about the fact that, you know, um, lung cancer is clearly still driven largely by smoking and tobacco utilization. Um, so how do we need to look at tobacco use um, and those kind of factors through that gendered lens? What are the things that we're not considering by just looking at it either through biology or just looking at it through a lens that doesn't consider gender? Derek, I want to ask you, we do nature, nurture. Let's let's go into nurture, which you think is part of it. Women 
tend to go to the doctor more. And I, there was a discussion, I guess, that maybe women hog healthcare services. Is it the opposite, that men don't do it enough? What do you think? So this has always been a rather contentious sort of thing. And actually, one of the things I think I mentioned in that piece is the initial thought when men, when we've typically, we've utilized males and male bodies as the standard. And so women were, when we compared women to that, the initial thought years ago was that women were overutilizing services. And since that time, we've actually realized, well, actually women were utilizing services at least better than men or more appropriately than men. Um, because men weren't going for preventive care. The real difference in terms of healthcare utilization between men and women is really in preventive care, well-person visits, and so forth. Women don't go to the doctor as much as they should when they are symptomatic. I mean, if you think about busy women, women who have careers, women who have other responsibilities and so forth, they're more likely to continue to tough it out and you know, not go to the doctor mm-hmm. if they are mildly symptomatic any more necessary than men. It's just that men will or don't have a regular sort of place of checking in to, to make sure that they actually, a regular time that they're actually, you know, at least checking in with the doctor to see those things that they can't feel and tell by themselves. And then we look at that. How how much would this play into it? Let's look at depression. It gets a lot of attention. I, you know, men don't talk about it. Uh, now they are, but is that, I mean, we're calling this a silent crisis. Have we even looked enough at depression here? We definitely have not. And I think one of the things, so again, this is another one of those really contentious issues. Women are diagnosed with depression at twice the rate of men, but mm-hmm. because of the high rates of substance use, um, dying by suicide and so forth, there's always been the question about whether or not men are underdiagnosed with depression. And it seems that way. And if you look at a lot of the symptoms of depression, one of the things that we studied years ago, my colleague, myself and some colleagues, um, Lisa Martin was the lead author on the paper that I'm referring to. We looked at depression symptoms. And when you incorporate those that clinicians um, note, like irritability, anger outbursts, and include things even like substance use in there, that are not typical symptoms of depression. Usually you think of depression as sadness, depressed mood weight loss or or significant weight gain, sleep, you know, insomnia and so forth. When you include those other factors, the gender difference actually goes away. And both men and women are actually diagnosed with depression at roughly equal rates. Now, that's not part of the, the typical way of diagnosing depression, but it is the way that clinicians tend to look at it. The point here is that men are severely underdiagnosed with depression, and we don't tend to recognize it. They don't tend to recognize it. We don't tend to recognize it in ourselves. And others, when they go into the healthcare system or even loved ones, don't tend to recognize it as depression. They will usually refer to it as something else. And men are more likely to externalize and engage in behaviors um, like risky sexual behavior, substance use, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of things to numb themselves of dealing with the feelings and so forth so that they can continue to focus on things that they do feel valued for, like working, contributing financially to a household and so forth, than they are necessarily valued for taking care of their own health and well-being. There we go. This is such a a revolutionary bit of information for a lot of people. Is there a a gap in, are we we empathetic enough to men? You know, I'm I'm a woman here, but we're, are we, 
do we offer that empathy? Or does the empathy go to women here? We, we're always trying to scrutinize our biases. Is there one here, in your opinion? Um, I, I'm hesitant to go there. I mean, I, I think it's, <laughs> it's under under under-recognized and under-appreciated. I know some men will react to feeling like they're, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it kind of ends up being a catch-22. Like some men will not like the idea of being vulnerable, being, you know, seen as needing that kind of assistance. So by labeling them as needing more empathy and so forth, that they will, you know, sometimes may paradoxically sort of turn away from the system as opposed to, you know, sort of leaning into the strengths and so forth that they're sort of thinking. But the spirit of what you're saying, yes, that we don't tend to recognize it, pay enough attention to it, or even recognize the fact that, again, these ideas and ideals that men have about how they should prioritize their health versus other things in their lives is not something that just men are the ones who are responsible for promoting. The women in their lives are also endorsing, supporting these norms and expectations in men, too. You know, the whole thing of yeah. little boys, when they fall and, you know, yeah. they tell them to get up. It's not just the males that are telling them to get up. It's also women in their lives that are telling them the same thing. You know, so we, we yeah. don't have the same <laughs> appreciation for men to take care of themselves because we tend to value men more for their roles in Um, Or we still have, despite all the changes that have happened in our society in terms of gender roles, norms, and expectations, there still tends to be a linking for a lot of men in terms of their financial roles or what they contribute financially to a household as having deeper meaning to them and their identity than than sometimes what it does for women. Again, not trying to, but it, it is recognizing that that has, when men are not fulfilling those roles it's usually a they see it we see it sometimes as a reflection of our character as a reflection of our integrity thank you for listening to today's podcast if you want to hear more subscribe to the roy green show on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorites and if you like what you hear leave us a review and tell a friend i'm roy green have a great weekend